Shut up and sit down. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Electrician Live. My name is Paul Abernathy, your host as always, and welcome to the podcast. On today's episode, we are going to talk a little bit about some National Electrical Code changes for the 2020 edition. And so this will probably be part of a multi-part podcast series where we talk about significant changes uh, to the National Electrical Code for those that are moving forward from the 2017 edition in your state. You have Massachusetts who's moved forward to the 2020 and you've got other states will be obviously coming along here as the next year goes by. I believe Texas will probably be by September. And again, everything usually starts following after that. So you're in your journey. You're heavily in the 2017 code or maybe you're even the 2014 code. Uh, It's always good to stay ahead of what the curve is. In, In this case, the latest published edition is the 2020 and we've already done it. It's published. It's out. You can get it. It's also free if you want to go read it on the NFPA's website. All you do is get a free account, and you can get access to any edition. Now, of course, it won't be highlighted with the uh, information about code change, or it won't have the little margin stuff. It's just the code, pure and simple, uh, but it's good to have. And you can always uh, you know, just forget which one you're on and go to that one and just start adapting your use to that. Uh, but again, be careful what state you're in. And depending on what you're at, but when it comes to learning what's going to change, it's always good to be ahead of the curve. And so that's what you would be if you're kind of looking at the 2020 code at this point. Um, so most of you all know that we we adopt a code every three years. Uh, and uh, once it's out there, when we say adopt, um, it doesn't necessarily mean your jurisdiction adopts it, obviously, right away. But they usually, within a three to four year period between an acceptance stage when a published document comes out and it goes through your local legislation and it gets adopted by your jurisdictions uh, or the state, however you do it. Um, and then you usually have that for a couple of years and then a new one comes out. So we just came out back in the end of 2019. We came out with the 2020 edition and there were a lot of significant changes. Uh, there was over 3,700 or some odd, don't quote me, on public inputs and then another 1,700 or 1,800 public comments. Uh, in order to get us to this stage, it was contestedly debated at our NITMAMs, a lot of things like reconditioned and the definition of reconditioned and people agree to disagree on certain things. But anyway, the code is what it is. So here we are. We're at the 2020. Now, part of this series, I've been asked by a lot of people to give my... Uh, overview, and obviously I'm doing this in a podcast, so you're going to have to paint you a visual picture, which I tend to do, uh, and uh, we'll try to lay out some of the changes and, and help you wrap your head around it. Hopefully you got a 2020 edition, you can kind of follow along, because I'm going to start from the beginning, and each podcast is going to build on that. So this is going to be episode one of our podcast series on the 2020 National Electrical Code, and it'll be as a continuation series. Now, First things first, you need to understand when you're looking at the National Electrical Code. It doesn't matter whether it's the 2020 edition, 2017 edition, 2014 edition, 2011 edition, 28 edition, 25 edition. You have to understand what the NEC covers and what it does not cover. So in Article 90, it's basically is an introduction and explanatory 
portion of the National Electrical Code that kind of tries to tell you what is covered by the NEC and what is not covered by the NEC. Okay, So we do have an understanding that in Section 90.5A5, of the items that are considered covered, we did have some clarity. Some additional information uh, was added. Uh, And it was important that clarified that electrical installations from the shore power to small crafts and floating uh, buildings uh, are covered by the NEC, okay? Uh, and so ships, it's what's covered is the portion from shore power all the way down to the dock or to the pier where you might have a pedestal uh, or a piece of equipment that's actually what the ships or watercraft will pull up to, and then they'll have a, a, obviously a cord and plug that will plug up into the actual power at the shore. So it was just made clear in the National Electrical Code under that change, okay, that um, the NEC does cover shore power all the way down to the point where it distributes it out to the watercraft or ships, all right? Now, not to be confused with things like floating buildings, which is already covered in the National Electrical Code. That's basically a a dwelling unit floating on whether it is uh, something buoyant, like uh, uh, barrels or foam or whatever it is. A floating building follows the NEC scope. It's wired just like a normal building, okay? And they typically will have permanent power from shore. This is a case where you go down to the marina and people pull up in boats and things like that. So who's responsible? Is, is the NEC responsible for everything down? I'd like to tell you that, yes, the NEC is responsible for everything down to the water, onto the pier, onto the dock, But once it goes off and can float away in the water, other than a floating building, which can't float away, it's it's moored, then that part's not covered, but all the way down to the water, down to the pad, down to the point that's still on our side of the watercraft is covered by the National Electrical Code. And all it did was make it known to that, because we have a lot of things in Article 555 that we're going to cover when it comes to other buildings, things that we want to make sure that... We know that the NEC is responsible for that. So the first change in the NEC was just to make it clear what's covered and what's not covered. So, uh, again, all that shore power stuff is covered. Without a doubt, there's no argument there. Uh, The other thing that was added in the covered portion was 90.2A6, in case you're following along in the 2020 edition. And in the past, we had what we called electric uh, power from vehicles, alternate power vehicles, uh, and we would power them like a rechargeable bill of vehicle. We would power them. But in many cases now, it is what's called bi-directional. It means that you could actually use the electric vehicle as a source of power, say standby power, back to the actual premise. And so we didn't really have any rules on that. What's inverter? What was, what was it doing? How are we wiring this system if it was going to be bi-directional in nature? Uh, we were pretty good at when we supplied power to a outlet that would power and charge the actual uh, unit. But what about in a standby situation where it could actually push power back to the premise wiring? And so we needed some guidance on that. And, and we needed to know whether or not the code covered the scope of that. And obviously, it does cover the scope of that. So that was a change in 90.2A6 that makes it clear that exported power from vehicles, say your premise or as an alternate power source, most notables are covered. 
And we also talk about that in Article 625, but just remember it also is going to be bi-directional, so it covers what comes into the structure. If those those EV vehicles, for example, were being used as a standby power source, okay? So as we explained it, what we should be pretty clear in the NEC what is covered and what is not covered by the NEC, okay? So uh, just wanted to make that clear. Um. 90.2B1 was made clear that watercraft other than floating buildings, again, just a clarification of how it's written, um, it made it really clear that watercraft other than floating buildings, which are, are covered in the NEC, anything else, again, not covered by the NEC. Okay, If it wasn't clear before, it is clear. All right. Now, as well, it's made it very clear that not all automobile vehicles are excluded from the rules in the NEC, such as mobile homes, recreational vehicles, and all that. That is covered by the NEC. So all we did here was try to make sure that we knew what was covered and what wasn't covered and, and, and made it really clear for people to understand that. So that was the very first significant change that took place. The next big change that we want to talk about in this series uh, is in Article 100. So Article 100 is the definitions. It's so important for you to understand definitions. Uh, and there are so many things that got added that we're not going to cover all of them in this session. Obviously, we're not. I am going to tell you that there was a number of definitions that were added, and we're going to talk about some of them that are more significant. Uh, but there's a lot of them that have just been relocated there. Uh, and so also just make it clear, Article 100 is broken down into three parts. Um, and the third part is brand new for the 2020. And all it really is is a collection of all those definitions that are related to hazardous classified locations. So they were pulled out of other areas of the NEC, like 500, 501, 502, 503, which is dealing with Class 1, Class 2, or Class 3, Division 1, or Division 2. And all of those definitions that were pertinent to that were pulled out of that because if they're used in more than one article, the code's manual of style says that you have to relocate that definition over to Article 100. So that's what they've done but we put it in part three. So it puts everything in a nice little tidy package for you. Now, if you're going to work in those areas that might have hazardous classified locations, and it doesn't just mean 500, 501, 502, 503. It also could be uh, 513, 514. It could be for commercial garages. There's this other areas that have definitions, and that's why it's relocated to 100 because those definitions may be germane to more than just within that article. Okay, so that's been kind of cleared up for us. We have a better way to go now. We have a part three that's going to be exclusive for hazardous classified location definitions. And, and it's all located now in Article 100. And so it makes it easy. Now, in case you forgot, part one is still the general terms uh, when it comes to general definitions throughout the NEC. Uh, part two in Article 100 is, again, over 1,000 volts. So all those over 1,000 volts, which many of you probably will never dabble in if you don't deal with over 1,000 volts. And, of course, part three is the new one dealing with hazardous classified locations. Now, some of the definitions that we, we've added or we've relocated, we'll talk about. And a couple things to remember, in the 2020 code, when it is a new definition, it will be highlighted as new. And you will be able to tell that it is new or relocated from another location uh, within the National Electrical Code. And you know why, because it's used in two or more articles, and that's how it makes its way. Now, something to remember about definitions, they're critical to understanding how to apply the National Electrical Code. You really have to know the definitions of something um, to wrap your head around it. 
But also, you'll notice that after every definition, there's in parentheses, there's a CMP, and it'll tell you the number of the CMP. What that means is that definition was crafted, designed, and the intent of how it's to apply was done by the code-making panel that has purview over it. It means purview meaning they're the ones that make that decision. So they do this, and then they take that as a complete package, and it gets submitted over to chapter, uh, to CMP1. Now, CMP1 is the one that has purview over placing things in Article 100, okay? But the creation of it comes from the code-making panel that's in the parentheses beside the definition, okay? Always important to understand that because you want to know what are those code-making panel one guy's doing when it really had nothing to do with them. The definition was by the code panel that had purview over it, okay? They're the ones that can create it and design it, modify it, and, and submit it. Okay, so a couple definitions we'll look at in this episode, uh, as this is obviously going to be an ongoing episode. Uh, we have the term attachment fitting. So what is an attachment fitting? It's a device that is inserted into a locking support and mounting receptacle. Covers you remember we changed the definition of receptacles back in 2017 uh, to order to expand for these types of devices. Now, it also goes on to say establishes a connection between the conductors and an attachment utilization equipment and the branch circuit conductors connected to a locking support and mounting receptacle. All right, so we don't have to overthink this. Think about a ceiling fan. Think about an extremely heavy luminaire. This is a device that was created. The attachment fitting portion is the portion that fits to the luminaire or to the fan that interconnects with a receptacle that goes into a lighting box or a fan support box or whatever it would be. And think of it as actually is a receptacle. It looks like a receptacle. It's just configured differently than a normal receptacle that me and you are used to looking at on the wall. There's still a male and there's still a female. The male portion connects in to the actual uh, luminaire or the fan, which is what this is. And it has prongs on it, but again, usually they're circular, so it's a lot more contact area. And it has a locking mechanism. And you mount this on the luminaire or the fan, and then you take it up to the receptacle portion that you mount in the box, and they will click together. And together, integrally, it supports the weight of that um, utilization equipment, whether it's a fan or whatever is being utilized by this system. And they mate together. And you still a receptacle, and you have this attachment fitting, which goes onto the piece of equipment whatever it is, and they mate together. So it's like a receptacle, but we needed to, we already knew what a receptacle was. We now needed the other piece to be defined, and that's what an attachment fitting is. And so they mate together, okay? And we saw this expansion. Uh, there was a change made in the 2014 code, and then again, it was rechanged a little bit in the 2017 code. Uh, we redefined the, the definition of receptacle, which kind of paved the way for this self-locking device that's used, again, for heavy luminaires and ceiling fans. And again, many companies might start to adapt this. Uh, and it really makes it easy to hang a ceiling fan or something like that. The more people that adapt this process uh, is going to be awesome. We just have to make sure that the receptacle and everything's designed. The fan box is designed to support the weight. We meet all the rules in 314.27, all the good stuff. Then they can mate together. And we just needed to know what that piece was that mounted on the fan or the luminaire. And that's what this is. It's an attachment fitting. Okay. And there's plenty of definitions, uh, pictures of that all over the internet if you want. Uh, but really, the wiring of the luminaire or the fan actually wires into the attachment fitting. That mounts on the lights up at the where the chain is, where you connect it to the box. And then you put the receptacle in the light box 
Uh, and then once you do that, there is no connections the electrician has to make. I think that's awesome. Once you wire the receptacle in a box and you put the attachment fitting on the luminaire or fan, boy, you just lift them up together and snap it right in. Man, it's going to make for a quick operation and probably going to make things safer when you're working on on ladders and things like this because you don't have to worry about holding the light while you're doing this. You just Once it's all done, you just push it up there and snap it together. Good to go. I think it's a good thing. Wish I had to come up with it. All right, the next definition we have is dormitory unit. That is a change for the uh, 2020 NEC. What is a dormitory unit? That was a big question. All throughout the code, we we had references to dormitories uh, in 210, 240, 406, 500. We, we had all these things, and we just didn't know exactly what a dormitory unit was. Well, now we do. And obviously, because we use the reference to that uh, dormitory unit, all a uh, dormitory, all through the NEC, and the migration to dormitory unit definition helps us place it in Article 100 now because it does have a broad use through multiple articles. What is a dormitory unit? It is a building or a space in a building. So you can have a building, and you can have one portion of that building, a space designated as a dormitory unit. Happens a lot. You have the building itself might be a dormitory with dormitory units, or you might have a building collectively that could be used for many other types of occupancies, but you might have a space in that building that is designated and it would be used as a dormitory with dormitory units. So understanding this definition, it says a building or a space in a building in which group sleeping accommodations are provided for more than 16 persons, so it's more than 16, not 16, more than 16 persons who are not members of the same family in one room or a series of closely associated rooms under joint occupancy and single management with or without meals, but without individual cooking facilities. So there's no cooking in there individually for these dormitory units, okay? Now, what's really significant with this one to me is also gives me the opportunity to explain what a single management means because you'll see that other places of the code. Uh, single management means I might have other buildings on of campus, for, for example. I use this example all the time. Uh, and it's all controlled by one set of switchgear in one building. So one location has singular control, over all these other buildings, that is single management. One location to control everything on the load side of it. Okay, because you could have feeders going out to other locations, but it is under single management. One location, one place can kill power to all the other locations. That's a layman's way of understanding what single management means when you're applying the National Electrical Code. Okay, kind of, kind of making it as simple as possible to understand it because you'll see the term single management come up also when you're talking about things like multiple services to a building. You're having an allowance to have more than one service to a building as long as all of the other are under single management. Now you know what single management means. One common location to kill power to everything that might be on the load side of it. Okay, That's single management. Think of it as management in a building or management as a management structure. You have one manager and you have people that are underneath the manager. The manager has the say. Okay, that is single management. All right. Now, the next definition we'll look at is called fault current. Now, what is the definition of fault current? It's the current derived at a point on this system during a short circuit condition. Now, short circuit is between two, would say, between two hot conductors. That's a short circuit. Any connection of a hot to ground will be a ground fault, okay? So 
Short circuit, again, neutrals and hots uh, are circuit conductors. The equipment ground is not. It's an equipment ground. It runs with the circuit conductors, but circuit conductors uh, are the hot, the ground. So any ungrounded conductor and the grounded conductor or neutral is part of circuits. So short circuit between those, usually the overcurrent protective device is going to function. That's its intent. Remember, overcurrent devices are short circuit ground fault and overload. So it should cover all of those aspects as well. But what we needed was a clear definition of what fault current was. So in the 2020 public inputs, um, there was the, was presented as, quote, an ab- objectionable current that flows due to an abnormal circuit condition. Although this was incorrect, because it gave the impression that fault current could only be associated with objectionable current. And that is not true. Okay, Objectionable currents can happen happen all kinds of other ways. So that definition didn't work. So it had to go back to the drawing board again, okay, so that we didn't have a conflict with 250.6. And so they did. And so at the end of that stage, it was corrected during the public comment stage. So people ask me all the time, what's the significance of public input versus public comment? Well, your public input that you can submit, everybody can submit it, um, is kind of unique because it lets you throw everything out there. And then we will look at it. And we'll, re, we'll, we'll, we'll clean it up and then put it out there. And then the public comment stage is for the people that submitted it and other people with interest can look at it and say, yeah, y'all didn't do that. That's not my intent. That's not what I wanted to do. But you know what? The beautiful thing about the NFPA process is that we have so many processes. Uh, it's not like the ICC stuff, which can be gamed like crazy. I literally hate the ICC code adoption process. That is done in a big room where people vote, and if somebody's not in a the room, they don't vote, and it's, it doesn't matter because they don't check anything. It's not done the same way as NFPA stuff is done. So ICC stuff is flawed in my opinion. That is my opinion. But if you ever go attend one, you'll see that anybody could game the system. Depending on where the code change was in the development process, you could have people come in a room and vote and then disappear and not vote on the next thing. And so the numbers can go all over the place. And something that can be really, really bad for the code could ultimately get put in the code the ICC codes because of lack of support or more support for something that wasn't necessarily a good rule. And so that's the bad part about the ICC. You really can't get that in the NEC process, even though you think that it's overrun by manufacturers. That's not the case. Okay. That's a fallacy. But again, there's those haters out there that will say that that is the case, but they probably never been to an NFPA conference in their life, so they wouldn't even know. So they're just speaking and they don't have a clue. All right, so the next thing, so I always say remember your source. Always remember those that attend those processes or that are part of those processes know much better than those that aren't physically a part of that process, okay? All right, and I encourage them to get to be a part of that process, although it's not an easy thing to become a member of a co-panel. It's not that easy. All right, the next important change that we'll talk about is equipotential plane. Now, we're all familiar with equipotential plane. What is that? We're creating two different uh, potential points that are bonded together in order to do what? To reduce voltage gradients between two points in a designated area. So we think of that a lot when we are talking about swimming pools when we create this equipotential bonding grid in 680.26. So when we're creating that, this is where we're, what we're trying to do is to reduce uh, voltage gradients because if you have a high level of voltage gradients that's how current moves from point a to point b when there's a high gradient okay so there's a big difference of two different potentials so we want to reduce that voltage gradient amongst these two points uh, and if you do that you're pretty much masking 
the, the voltage that might inevitably be in that area. And if you're not creating a difference of potential, then you're not creating a potential for shock. You're basically masking it. You're not getting rid of it in most cases, or probably all cases, but you're at least masking it so we don't have any difference of potential. Okay, so we're reducing that gradient. That way we, we risk the chance of feeling any impact. And so the definition, that's not only for swimming pools and hot tubs and spas and whatever in 680, but we're also pretty familiar with doing that also in agricultural applications when it comes to cow producing milk and things like that. Because while we think that's not overly a, a health condition, it is a condition where it affects everything else uh, because it becomes an issue where the cows won't produce and things like that. So, and it does have differences of potential, which put in the right condition can be an unsafe condition, but we have our rules for agricultural and we want to try to, uh, in 547 is where that would be covered. And then of course, 680 and 682, we have our voltage requirement, our, excuse me, our equipotential requirements. And I just wanted to make sure you understand that there is now a definition uh, and it, it's, it's better understood here. And here's what it is. That was a lot of way for me to talk in order just to tell you. Echopotential plane. The definition now is accessible conductive parts bonded together to reduce voltage gradients in a designated area. Okay. So up to this point, those who truly understood what an equipotential plane is and why we do it have been really in the minority. But now we understand we're trying to reduce voltage gradients between two points that are conductive. And by tying them together, we're reducing the voltage gradient from point A to point B. So they're trying to act like they're both at the same value. And then you have almost zero voltage gradient. Okay. So up to this point, people didn't understand it, but now I think we do. The term is used in five, Article 547, 680, 682. Uh, and yes, while each application is a bit unique, okay, they both are trying to achieve the same goal, and that same goal is to reduce voltage gradients between two bonded points. Okay, Basically, again, we're trying to mask the difference of touch potential by reducing the voltage gradients. That's all. That's really what we're trying to do. Uh, and it's really important because a lot of the, the accidents that happen, for example, even though I'm going into 680, um, is that people don't get electrocuted in pools. They usually drown because there's a difference in potential. They lock up, and it's not electrocuting them, but it causes their equilibrium to go out, and then all of a sudden uh, their diaphragm locks, and they, can't, and they end up drowning. That's really what happens. It's not so much electric shock. Okay, It's enough voltage gradient from one point to another point that it causes some kind of respiratory issue or ability to breathe or whatever or balance. And again, touch potentials are different. Skin potentials for uh, the uh, resistance of the skin is different from men to women, older to younger, uh, people that have a lot of calluses versus none. I mean, so there's all these different things and we're trying to mask it all. And that's all what an equitential plane does. It's just doing some masking. You can't get rid of it, but you're masking it between two points. Okay. So the definition will go a long way in trying to make that clear for people, okay? Next one would be free air. So we had a, uh, for years, people have utilized a specific table in the 2017 code. It was 31015B17, but in the 2020 code, we have obviously have a change to Article 310, where everything's a little more uh, lined up, uh, easier to understand, if you will. And so the tables go back to what they used to be a couple cycles ago, so 310... 
315B17 is now 31017, and that deals with the ampacity values when dealing with free air. Now, we had to know what the definition of free air is it applies to conductors because people have been applying free air even to cables that might be plexed or twisted and say that, oh, well, that's considered free air, and that is not true. So free air, we wanted to get just a basic definition, and it says, here's the definition. It says open or ventilated environment that allows the heat dissipation and airflow around an installed conductor. Okay? So in that type of application, uh, we would simply say, uh, so how do we do that? All right. So many times you have a cable tray and you throw these cable, these conductors in there, single insulated conductors or single conductor cables, we should say, although we did have a change for that in the 2020, which we'll talk about at some point. But let's use what we've done in the past. We would put single conductor cables uh, which would be all those listed outside of Article 310. I know that's going to blow your mind, but those items like XHHW and THHN, THWN-2 are under 310 of the NEC are single insulated conductors. They are not single conductor cables. Example would be 338 USE-2, which looks very similar to a single insulated conductor, is actually a single conductor cable, and that's why it's in 338 and not in 310. Okay. I know I just blew your mind thinking we've been allowing THHN and THWN in industrial applications in cable trays for decades, and yes, we have. Technically, it didn't meet the intent of the NEC, but don't worry. 2020 code, we changed the language, and we're going to allow single insulated conductors in those cable trays because we people have been doing it for, for decades anyway, even though the code really didn't explicitly permit it. Most people didn't reject it, so it's become commonplace. But again, that was only for industrial establishments. All right, we'll talk about that when we get there one day. All right, so free air, you're throwing these conductors inside of a cable tray, and they're all laying over each other. They're just just—they're not really uh, spaced out to allow heat dissipation. So if that's the case, you really cannot use the allowances of free air, which is going to have a higher ampacity value because it allows for air dissipation. The whole concept is those conductors have to be separated to allow dissipation of heat. So it also means it's almost impossible to ever allow the use of 31017 inside of a raceway. Can be done inside of a cable tray, which is not a raceway. That is a supporting system. Don't confuse a cable tray as a raceway because it is not. All right, so... How you lay those conductors in there is going to be vital to whether or not you can use 310.17, and engineers need to understand that, okay? So, important that we have a definition of free air to be able to understand this. Now, for example, even in a cable tray uh, that teaches that maybe uh, MC cable is installed in it, the free air is used in 330.80B and 392.80A2. Where applicable, just know that free air means, uh, just know what the term free air means and whether or not it's applicable or not to being able to utilize that table. And you might be surprised whether or not you literally have open or ventilated environment and you're allowing for free air to move from an installed conductor. Okay, If it's bundled and cabled and things like that, don't think that you can use a free air component because the cables provide what's called mutual heating and they're really not able to use a free air condition. All right, I'm giving you definitions, too, that some of our code change partners aren't even including in their material. So get excited about that. I'm going to cover a lot of stuff in this series. 
The next thing would be we have a definition now what's called island mode. Now, this used to be called standalone mode. Uh, and it's talking about things like PV systems, which can be utilized in a standalone, not actually utilizing or connection to the grid, treated as a standalone. It was found in um, what was previously was in 710.2 definitions. But of course, it's utilized in multiple locations because you can have a standalone or you can have something that operates in a standalone mode, but it also operates in a utility interactive mode. So it's kind of can go both ways. So, but when it's being utilized in a standalone, think of it as an island by itself. And that's why it's called island mode. And let me read you the definition. It says the operational mode for standby power production equipment like PV or whatnot, or an island microgrid, or a multi-mode inverter, or an interconnected microgrid that is disconnected from an electrical power production and distribution network or other primary power source. So it's working independently as its own island of, of supply of a power source. And some equipment inverters are designed to allow a power production source, whatever it may be, PV, whatever, to act in what's called an island mode, literally disconnects itself from the other sources of power. And that is what island mode is all about. Okay. So to avoid any confusion, the standalone island term was changed to island mode. Uh, And it's when something's operating in island mode for various systems, we now have a definition to be very clear that that's what island mode means. It's not so much from a wiring fundamental standpoint, because you're probably going to just wire the equipment like you normally would, but understanding when something has operated in island mode or the reference to island mode, think of it as simply it's operating onto itself as that island out in the middle of the, of the ocean. It's, 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 by, it's operating singularly by itself, or it has the ability to do that within the mode change from other systems it might be connected to. Okay, so I would put it in island mode or it would go into island mode. Okay, so it's just a definition to help clarity. That's all. The term grounded conductor. It's a system or circuit conductor that is intentionally grounded. So obviously on a grounded system. Uh, and when we're talking about things like solidly grounded systems, you know, the transformer, you have XO to, to the to earth. Uh, by making that connection to one of the, the points on the transformer system, uh, you're deriving or creating the grounded conductor because it is intentionally grounded to ground. So we have a definition, and it also added an informational note for clarity. It said, although an equipment grounding conductor is, con- is grounded, it is not considered a grounded conductor. Why is that important? Because we have so many rules for grounded conductors and we have rules for equipment grounding conductors and they do two different things. Okay. Now, while an equipment grounding conductor is yes in the scheme of the entire layout of the system and how things wire up and how you go back to the panel with the equipment grounds and how they go on the same bus and yes, they are intimately in contact with the ground at one point. Um, they have a separate function. That's why we size overcurrent protective devices. Uh, and when we do that, we size the equipment grounding conductor based on those devices. Okay, that's different. The grounding conductor is sized a lot of times based on the calculated load. And we know what the calculated neutral load is. And so when we make a grounded conductor, the code also allows us on the supply side of a service disconnect to utilize the grounded conductor as a bonding component to bond other metal parts and other enclosures. So two different roles. So we had to understand, but we know that what a grounded conductor is. 
It is literally intentionally grounded. Okay. Now, what's most interesting in this change is that the term grounded as the grounded conductor uh, was the informational note and was added by CMP5. The informational note attempted to make it very clear to the installer. Again, equipment grounded conductor and grounded conductor are both technically, technically grounded at some point in the system, which is basically defined as connection to earth or a conductive body that extends the ground connection at some point in the electrical system. Okay, But it's important for us that you understand that they serve two different roles, right? And uh, both are vitally important, but they are definitely two different roles. The next definition we're going to look at is called habitable room. Now, this was came to us from NFPA 5000, and it was really needed because we had many places in the National Electrical Code that made reference to a habitable room. Uh, but we didn't really know what a habitable room was. And if you're the electrician that's not used to dealing with NFPA documents or IBC documents that make reference to habitable rooms, you didn't really know what it was. So we had to have a definition for it. So what is the definition of habitable room now for you to use whenever habitable room is referenced uh, and to distinguish what is considered a habitable room and what is not considered a habitable room? We now have a definition. It says habitable room. It says a room in a building for living sleeping, eating, or cooking, but excluding bathrooms, toilet rooms, closets, hallways, storage, or utility spaces, and similar areas. So there's areas that we don't want to be considered a habitable room, obviously, because if it was considered a habitable room, then we would have to meet the wall spacing requirements for receptacles and 21052A, and we wouldn't need to do that in a bathroom. We obviously don't need it in a hallway. We have a rule for receptacles in a hallway. Any hallway that's 10 feet or more requires receptacle. Um, and it could be a 100 feet hallway, but it still only requires one. Unless you go through a hallway or a door breaks up that measurement and then it starts over again. Um, but for the most part, we don't need receptacles in storage and utility spaces unless a piece of equipment's being placed in there. And that needs a receptacle. Other than that, we know now what habitable rooms are not, and they are not bathrooms, toilet rooms, closets, hallways, storage, utility spaces, or similar areas to those which we just talked about. Um, and I teach HJs all the time. What distinguishes a similar area? If the use of that area is 51% or greater compliant with one of these other types of rooms, then it would qualify as one of those excluded rooms. If it qualifies and is walks and talks looks the same as a living room, but it's utilized somewhere else, then it is a habitable room. It could be habitable. Uh, so that's the threshold of how I teach people to do it other than lack of guidance anywhere else. You're the one that makes the decision, obviously inspectors, and you have to work together to be able to do this. But at least in Article 100, when we make reference in the NEC to a habitable room, we now know what gives us some guidance to build that interpretation on. Okay. Now, why is that important? Um, I think that the majority of the building officials and inspectors are going to love this change. They, they love their IBC. They love their IRC. And now when working with the NEC, they now have some guidance for a habitable room. I think that's beneficial to them. A uh, couple areas that we encounter this. Uh, is when we're dealing with Section 21070A1, and it makes reference to that area. So 21070A1 is requiring at least one lighting outlet controlled by a listed wall-mounted control device in every habitable room. Okay? 
And then it goes on to say kitchen and bathroom. Now, the reason it says kitchen and bathroom is because people would argue that might not be a habitable room, but a bathroom is not a habitable room, but this rule is requiring it in there anyway. So it would be all habitable rooms, including a kitchen and including a bathroom, even though bathroom would have been excluded. Okay. And we could have argued that it didn't even need to say kitchen. But again, the reason it, you know, it just makes it very clear that you need to have a wall mounted control device in every habitable room. Okay. So the importance of that is in some rooms, um, we can uh, uh, have a uh, switched receptacle like in a bedroom, which is a habitable room, and that's going to meet the requirement of 210.70A1. There's an allowance for that. Uh, now, the definition excludes kitchens as habitable rooms. That's the normal because if you look in the definition, you know it can exclude those, ap- those applications when you're looking at um, habitable room. It doesn't really state that. Okay. Um, but I mean, it doesn't in so many words state it, but it, it does require a listed wall mounted control device for lighting outlets in kitchens. Therefore, it's critical to understand how one rule can change and modify another rule. Okay. So that's kind of what happens and that follows 90.3. So, uh, one of those things to just, just remember how it works out, but the point here was the reference to habitable room where it's referenced in NEC uh, allows us to be able to be very clear uh, of what a habitable room is. And that's the important of the point. Spent way too much time on that one, but you get the point. Uh, the next thing is the definition, what's called messenger or messenger wire. Now, I think most people knew what a messenger was and it was a supporting component from say a building a cross to b b okay we understand the term a messenger but we didn't really have a definition for messenger so it's been in the code forever and so again now we 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 know what it is and it is a wire that is run along with or integral means included within with a cable or conductor to provide mechanical support for the cable or conductor. Now, there's a products on the market for utility for service drops, and the neutral is actually, it has an integral wire or conductor in it. It's usually steel. They make it other types are available today, but that's the, the, the genesis, the beginning product. And you've probably seen it. You have insulated conductors coming down from the pole, and you have that bear. That bear is supporting the weight because of it has an integral conductor inside of the, the actual stranding uh, of that neutral, and that is usually referred to as an ACSR, aluminum conductor steel reinforced, uh, but they have other models out on the market today, carbon and all this other acronyms that are available, but that is the messenger within the cable assembly, but you can also have a messenger from point A to point B that other cable types will actually hang from it, whether it's through O-loops or a braiding system, like you can hang tray cable, you can hang MC, obviously PVC jacketed MC, all of these from a messenger, uh, and so that's very much doable today, uh, but we didn't really understand what a messenger means, but that's what it means, okay? It is a wire along with or in- integral, means included in a cable, uh, that would be supporting the weight of the cable or the conductor from point A to point B, and that's what the definition of messenger is, okay? The next definition that we talk about is peer, 
Now, peer, the definition of peer was used in Article 514 and 555. Uh, It was never really defined very well. So obviously now uh, are in Article 100. And when you're dealing with any of those areas, whether or not you're dealing marinas uh, or you're dealing with uh, 514, whatever you're dealing with, we now have a definition of peer. And the peer is, quote, a structure extending over the water and supported on a fixed foundation. That would be a fixed pier, which we also have a definition for. We have fixed pier, floating pier, whatever. So, uh, so it again, it's a structure extending over the water and supported on a fixed foundation or on floating, that's a floating pier, that provide access to the water. So a pier can be either a fixed foundation or a fixed pier, or it can be a floating pier. Okay. The key here is it extends over the water. Okay. So the term pier, again, is widely used, but we never defined it. Without a definition, people didn't understand how to, to deal with it. And just as a note, if you want to know the definitions of all of the other types of piers, which is a fixed pier or floating pier, then they are also now found in Article 100. We won't cover all those in definition, but just know that they are there for your benefit. The next definition we're going to look at here in the 2020 change is the power production equipment definition. Now, it's important that we understand this because we think of all the possible electrical generating equipment that's used today. You know, generators, PV, photovoltaic, fuel cell, wind generation, and it's, all, it's extremely vital for us to know one, where one system stops and you bring that to a building and where another system begins. That's important. So with this change, it makes it clear the line of demarcation to any other electrical generating system other than the utility is considered power production equipment. Okay, so here's the definition. It says power production equipment. It's electrical generating equipment supplied by any source other than a utility service up to the source system disconnection means. So once you get up to the source disconnection means from that power production equipment, now it changes over to be included as part of premise wiring. That's the part that's going to leave from that from that source system disconnection means into the property or whatever it's supplying. But up to that point, all of those connections and everything associated with it are called power production equipment. And we have a lot of this in PV, all that system that's connected all the way up to the point where it gets to the systems, um, all the way up to the systems disconnection means at the structure, okay? So we now know what all that stuff is and how we consider it. Now, why is that important? It makes it clear anytime the NEC now is going to talk about these other systems and it talks about power power production equipment, what we're talking about. We're not talking about utility equipment, and we know that we're talking about all of the equipment that's associated on the supply side or the line side of the source system disconnection equipment or disconnection means, okay? So that covers a lot of componentry. So it's important to just understand the definition in case it ever makes a reference back to it. You know what we're talking about. We're not talking about utility, and we're talking about any of the electrical generating equipment that's on that's by uh, supplied by any source, PV, generator, whatever, other than utility, all the way up to the sources, systems, disconnection means, okay? All that would be considered power production equipment, okay? So think of all line side equipment. Reconditioned. Now, this was a hotly debated term uh, in the 2020 uh, development process. What can be reconditioned? What could not be reconditioned? So every co-panel was given the task 
of looking at the articles that's under their purview and determining what type of equipment could be reconditioned and what could not. But along that journey, we at least need to know what that meant. What does reconditioned mean? Because if I take a piece of equipment and I replace it with a brand new piece of equipment, that's not reconditioning. If I take a piece of equipment and I take it and I have that fixed piece of equipment refurbished, reconditioned, um, rebuilt, but it's the same piece of equipment and then I put it back, that's reconditioned. Okay. And once it's reconditioned, then I've got to label it and put the proper markings on it. And then I have to remove the existing mark from the piece's original listing and put the new reevaluated or reconditioned mark on it. And, and I have to follow a bunch of labeling requirements when I do that. Okay. So it's really important we know what the definition is. Now, there's a lot of equipment that you can recondition. And I find that most of the stuff that you can recondition is expensive stuff because it makes more sense because it's very much kind of like piecemeal and you can repair it and recondition it. Whereas sometimes there's stuff that you just would simply replace. And just because you're replacing it doesn't make that a recondition. And it means I don't have to have any special whatever to evaluate it. It should have its own listing and I replace it and it's good to go. So we had to have a definition. So here's the definition. Reconditioned. It says electromechanical systems, equipment, apparatus, or components that are stored or operating, uh, that are restored to operating condition. This process differs from normal servicing or, of equi- or equipment that remain within a factory or replacement of listed equipment on a one-to-one basis. It means if I pull it out and replace it with a new one, that's not reconditioned. That's just a replacement. It's fine. Now, informational note, it says the term reconditioned is frequently referred to as rebuilt, refurbished, or remanufactured. Okay? All of those still mean reconditioned. Okay? All I can tell you is during the final stage of this, it was a lot of debate, a lot of arguments. A lot of people got uh, really upset about the definitions of it. Some people wanted to quit certain equipment to be reconditioned. Others said absolutely not. Uh, but ultimately, at the end of the day, it was sent out to all of the code-making panels. It got voted on, and it is what it is. So, for example, you will not replace, or excuse me, you will not recondition. I want to make sure I don't get replacement in there. You will not recondition a receptacle. You will not recondition a circuit breaker, a molded case circuit breaker. But you do have some applications to recondition things like uh, medium voltage uh, equipment and certain things. You will be given switchboards. There's certain things you can recondition. You really want to consult with the manufacturer, but you do within those specific articles that deal with those things, like 408 deals with switchboards, panel boards, and you can't recondition a panel board. But there's provisions in there to recondition switch gear and switchboards. So we do give you now some guidance in there. Okay? So that's really the, in, the intent. Uh, the biggest impact that we're going to see here with the recondition and what can and what can't is in 695 for fire pumps, which you can't recondition, 700, 701, 702, and even 708, which is COP systems, critical operations. Uh, most of that stuff, transfer switches and all there, you cannot recondition. Okay, now there's been an argument whether it means, well, what if a piece inside of it needs to be replaced? I'll let you work on that with your AHJ. Um, but again, if you're just uh, repairing it as part of your normal operating procedure, as far as re- you know that type of thing, uh, then you're going to have to talk. If it's normal servicing, where you're going in servicing of the equipment, uh, and it still remains in there, then I think you probably wouldn't have to consider it reconditioned. Um, but you're going to have to talk to them when it comes to, let's say, what if you take out half the pieces in it and replace it? Uh, whether or not you use, lose your listing or not, um, to me, that sounds like you're reconditioning it. 
And if you're reconditioning it, then you got all new requirements for labeling it. So this one is a little bit, I'm not sure whether or not it means at what level you can replace components in something that would trigger that recondition mark. Others that are smart than me say it's black and white and it's easy to understand. I'm like, I don't know so much. So I do know what the code says. Some things you can recondition, some things you cannot. You just simply must replace. Okay. So, so in that case, uh, uh, you're just going to have to work on it yourself. Now, when you do do something also, it helps the, the user better understand the implications of 110.21A2 regarding the requirement marking for refurbished equipment and whether something has been reconditioned or refurbished in the marking requirements of 110.21A2, which you might take a moment to peek at and you'll see what it is. Okay. Now, Lastly here for this episode, we'll, we'll kind of wind up with some of the things that were relocated. Not all of them were obviously, we'll just talk about a couple things. Um, but there was quite a few definitions in the dot two sections of many articles that were actually moved over. And so I won't cover all of them, but I'll just cover about five of them to kind of give you some clarity on where they moved. Um, and this is required by the manual of style for NFPA, which is again, free, go to NFPA's website. You can see why we do what we do. Uh, but class one, class two, and class three, the definitions that were usually in 725.2, which is defining what those are, was moved over to article 100. Um, another one was electrical datum plane, which is, and some people say electrical datum or datum, whatever you want to say. It's the high watermark point, um, in the system, whether it's high tide or whatnot, the definition of electrical datum plane was in 555.2, but it has been moved over to Article 100, and now you just have one good uniform place to go find that definition. Uh, you also had what was called electrical datum plane distance. Uh, it was in 682.5, and that was important a lot of times for us to know what the electrical data plane is where we're installing boxes and things like that. Uh, in those areas, uh, it's most notably in 682, which was natural bodies of water and all that kind of thing, because um, you have different raised water and different things like that. So it was really important uh, to get that clarification. So anyway, that definition was moved, okay? And it was basically the electrical datum plane distance was actually moved up to 682.5. So this is an example uh, where it was moved from to. So this one was moved specifically to 682.5. Um, the next one would be, and it's, again, that is specific to 682, that article. Um, the next one was fuel cell system. That was moved to 100 from 692.2. Again, dot .2, it was broadly used, fuel system, cell systems, so that got moved into 100. And the last one we'll talk about is fuel cell. That also got moved from 692.2, which was, again, very germane to 692. Now it's more applicable as a definition over in Article 100. So we have the definition of fuel cell now that was moved. Okay. So in the next issue or the next uh, installment of this 2020 change, we'll talk a little bit about the movement uh, in uh, Part 3 of Article 100. So you can kind of get an understanding of what actually came about creating the part three of article 100, which is real important now because now we have a location for everybody to go to uh, when it comes to hazardous classified locations and all the definitions uh, like combustible dust, how many microns and whatnot. You, now you have a uniform place to go in part three specifically applies to hazardous classified locations only. Okay. So hopefully you got something out of that this episode until next time. Stay safe. God bless. 
Shut up and sit down. 